Psalm 58. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away when he aims his arrows. Let them be blunted. Let them be like a snail that dissolves into slime. Like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will surely say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, the goal of the Christian life is to be like God. So the goal of the Christian life is to grow in conformity in the image of Christ, in the image of God, to begin to do as God would do, to begin to think as God would think, and even to begin to feel as God would feel. Right? The goal of the Christian life is to be like God, to, to do as he does, think as he thinks, to feel as he feels. And this is one of the reasons that the Psalms are so helpful for us. We've been saying in this series, as we've been looking at different types of Psalms, that first of all, the Psalms give us a voice when we don't know what to say, right? The Psalms can be for you just a, a voice or give word to a feeling of great joy or great praise that's in your heart as we talked about last week. But secondly, the Psalms, we talked about this a few weeks ago. Secondly, the Psalms can connect us with the feelings of others. Will did a good job talking about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the Psalms of lament. It, it's hard to lament with someone who is lamenting if everything's going great in your life. And one of the ways that you can connect with them is through the Psalms. They, they actually provide voice not only to your own experience, but they also give you a way or give voice to the way that you can connect with other people, with other brothers and sisters. But they also help us to understand the heart of God. In the Psalms, as you read the Psalms, you, as it were, experience the emotion of God in these things. And so I believe that the more you study the Psalms, the more you sing the Psalms, the more you pray the Psalms, the more like God you will be, the more you will learn to do as God does and think as God thinks and even feel as God feels. When Paige and I first got married or first started dating, she wasn't really a, a, a fan of any or college team. Right? She went to a smaller school. Nobody in her family had gone to a big 
you know, SEC school or something like that. So she just was kind of a neutral person. And of course, she came into the Dees family and, uh, you know, understood that that meant her becoming an Auburn fan. And so she, she went along with it. She was a good uh, girlfriend, good wife. So she knew, you know, I cheer for Auburn. I, I, I love Auburn. But she didn't really cheer for Auburn, right? She, she, she knew it. She knew this was the, the right response to be a good girlfriend. But she couldn't quite feel these things in the same way that a true fan can. In fact, I remember 2009 is when I first realized that she wasn't really a fan. It was... Uh, <laughs> It was the 2009 Iron Bowl. If you remember the game, Auburn lost a few games. Alabama was undefeated. They came into Auburn, number two in the nation. Auburn was a big underdog, but with just like five or six minutes left to go in the game, Auburn was actually up. We were going to beat Alabama. And so, you know, we had him pinned deep. Uh, We just got to get a stop here, run out the clock. But of course, if you remember the game, uh, Greg McElroy kept hitting Julio Jones on these like five and six yard plays. Alabama chipped away. They drove the length of the field. They scored with a little upchurch play action play. And it was devastating. It was just a tough, tough loss. Hard to handle. I mean, we had him. We had him. And, you know, Greg and Julio made a way for victory. And we were driving back to Covington after the game. We were living in Covington at the time. And, you know, Paige was in the car. I was in the car. And Paige was fine. <laughs> you know, she had a good day in Auburn. She got to see a lot of people that we loved. And, you know, she was fine. And I remember looking over and her thinking to myself, like, she just doesn't, she doesn't, she's not a real fan. Like, <laughs> she's not meeting me in this moment, you know. And, and that's an illustration to, to help us understand really what Christian discipleship is like. It's not just to kind of know the decrees of God and to understand the way of God. It's to respond to the world in the way that God would respond to the world. Now, for Paige, after 11 years of marriage now, now she's not quite following recruiting yet or reading the daily practice reports, but she's... She's becoming more of a fan. She's getting high with the wins. She's getting a little low with the losses. She's growing as a fan. And this is just like Christian discipleship. It's to view the world as God would view the world. One of the things the Bible says about us is that we have been made in the image of God. Now, that's an important thing to understand. The image of God. You have been made in the image of God. Now, what does that mean? It means that an authority has been given to you. I, I believe that the best way to understand this is that there, God has entrusted you with something, okay? And you can either use what God has entrusted you for good, or you can use what God has entrusted you for destruction. Thanks for the, the timing here. So in the ancient Near East, all the kings, all the rulers had an image. They had a signet that went along with them. You know, it, it would be like the Nike swoosh today, you know, so they, except for it was a personal seal. It was a seal. It was, a, it was an icon. It was a figure that if you saw that, you knew this represents this particular king, right? This, actually, the picture I'm showing you here is a pharaoh king, a Connaughton, and uh, this, was his, this was his seal. This was his signal. And so it, it, whoever carried this sign, whoever had the signet, 
as it were, carried with him the authority of the king. And, and that was a very powerful thing to hold, right? If you, if you had the signet of the, the king, you could either use it to do great good for that king and actually bring honor and glory to that king, or you could use the sign, you could use the seal to, to shame the king, to bring about destruction upon the king. Actually, we see an example of this in the Bible. If you remember the story, remember how Joseph was sold into slavery, went to Egypt, and then he interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and he actually became the second in command of all of Egypt. And what happens in that story, if you remember the story, there's a detail that you might have missed, but Pharaoh actually gives Joseph his ring. He's saying, I want you to carry off this project to save us from famine. And here, here's all my authority. Whatever you say, is as if, it's as if I am saying it. This is the idea of image of God, right? You, as it were, all of you, have been created in God's image, have been entrusted by God with a sense of authority to act on his behalf. And you will either use what God has entrusted you to bring him glory. You will either learn how to think as he thinks and do as he would do and feel as he would feel and, and, and bring him glory by doing what he would do. Or you will take what he has entrusted you and use it for your own sake, and use it for your own good. And, and in this way, you will be incredibly destructive to his glory and to his image being known on earth. And that's actually where this psalm begins. Psalm 58, as Blake mentioned before, is a part of a category of psalms. It's a psalm that fits in a category called the imprecatory psalms. Okay, Now, the imprecatory psalms, to, to imprecate something or to... To make an imprecation against something is to, is to call out judgment against something, to, to, to bring judgment upon something, or to call out judgment upon something. And we see this, there's several psalms that are imprecatory psalms. We see imprecations throughout the Bible, even Jesus, right? Remember when Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, right? That is an imprecation. So the idea of an imprecation is to call out a curse uh, upon someone who goes against the will of God. The, the biblical idea of cursed is this idea that you are, if you're cursed, you're under the judgment of God, right? So that's important. Like if you hear this biblical idea of there is a curse upon him or I'm cursing, it's not, it, you're not saying you're ve like, it's, it's not like a curse, like a vex, right? It's not like it's like this evil curse that you have to like free yourself from. No, what a curse upon you means, means that you have gone away from the order and the design of God and you are facing his judgment, right? You are either actively enduring the curse for that you will face his judgment, which means you're under a curse, right? That, the, the, idea of, the biblical idea of curse is saying that there, there is a due for every time that we step outside of the order of God. And if you, you haven't experienced it right now, you will experience it. You're under a curse. Or you can biblically be free from the curse, right? You can have either served the punishment for whatever the sin you did is, or or as we see in the gospel, someone else can serve it on your behalf, freeing you from the curse. And so Psalm 58 is an imprecation. It is a curse. It is a calling out against these evildoers that we're going to see here. And it begins, actually, as I just said, with this understanding of, of where injustice comes from. So uh, I want to look at three things 
with you. First of all, why is there injustice? I think we see this in the psalm. Secondly, how should we feel about injustice? And then thirdly, what does God's perfect justice produce? So why is there injustice? And of course, we see it right here in the text. This is a huge question, right? This is a question that you should all have asked. And actually, this text gives us the answer. It says, do you increase what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No, in your hearts, you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on the earth. So what was going on here in the passage is, is some of the rulers of the time, David is speaking this, some of the rulers of the time, Saul uh, is an example of this, the king that was trying to kill David, but other rulers of the time, they are taking the position of authority that God had given them. They're taking, if you will, the image of God that God had entrusted to them. And rather than serve the God of the world, or the God of the universe, our God, the God, the key, their God, rather than serve God, they, they, they took his image, they took what he had entrusted them, and they made their own judgments. They went their own way. Their, their hearts devised wrongs. You see here even in the first verse, do you decree what is right, you gods? You see what he's saying there? Is he's saying you see yourself to be a God. You're putting yourself in the place of God, but you're not judging children of man uprightly. You're devising wrongs. You're dealing out violence. You don't care about imaging God. You're just taking what God has given you, what God has entrusted to you, and you're using that to serve yourself. You have failed to see God rightly. You've failed to feel as he feels, to think as he thinks, and do as he does, and you are serving your own way. And this is actually where all injustice begins. Injustice begins when those that God has entrusted with his image go against his desire, his way, what is good, and they serve themselves and not God. The way of the Lord is always right. The way of the Lord is always pure. The way of the Lord is always whole. I love the way that it is described in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God's way is always right and whole and good, and it produces peace, and it produces wholeness, and it produces rightness in the world. But injustice always happens when those that God has entrusted his image to take that image and use it to, for, their, for the sake of themselves. They abuse power. They take advantage of others. And we see violence as a result. And some of you are experiencing this right now. The reason that so many of us are so uneasy in the world right now is because of the injustice that's all around us. We, we can identify with this psalmist. Just look around you and, and look and see all of the people all around us that are, that are taking the investment of God's image and God's talent in their life and abusing it and making their own decrees and going against his way. 
and destruction and violence is all around us. Look at verse 3. He says of these people, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom, like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops his ear so that it does not hear the voice of the charmer or the cunning enchanter. Now, this is a strange passage, but it's very powerful. It's, it's easy to miss really the meaning here. Let me stop for a second. The, the, the wicked here, you're saying, are like serpents that are spewing venom everywhere. And then he says this, and they cannot be stopped. The word adder here uh, in verse 4, the deaf adder, that's another word for serpent. So the, the deaf serpent that, that is not listening, right? So do you, listen to the warning here. And the, the, the reason this is also hard to miss is because the psalmist here, also easy to miss, the psalmist here is likening God to the one who controls the snake or who charms the serpent, right? So you don't often hear God referred to as a snake charmer, right? So I think that's where you're kind of like missing, maybe miss the meaning here. But what is he saying here? He's saying, look, there's the wicked out in the world. They're spewing venom. They're, they're putting out violence everywhere. And this is like a serpent that won't listen to its charmer, <laughs> that cannot be stopped by its charmer. It's, it listens to no one. It has the power of poison. It has the power of fangs. And yet he listens to no one. He does whatever he wants. You cannot charm him. What he is saying to Israel is there is a serpent in your camp. There is a serpent among them that has all of this power who won't listen to other men, who won't even listen to the voice of God. And we feel the same thing oftentimes when we look around us. There are snakes all around us. And who will they listen to? What will stop them? What will correct them? And when you experience this, and when you experience the injustice of the wicked, of the, the one who has gone away from God's design and order, the next question is, our second point is, how should this make you feel? Where does injustice come from? Well, injustice comes from the fact that people who've been made in the image of God have turned away from God's way and have done their own thing. But how should we feel about injustice? And here's the answer. I'll go and give it to you. How should you feel about injustice? The, the answer is you should feel angry about it. How should you feel when you see injustice? The, the answer is you, you should be angry. Now, this is strange to say. Christians don't do well with what I'll call like the negative emotions, right? Christians love the positive emotions, but the negative emotions are, are trickier for us. So we, we talked about lament a few weeks ago, and that's kind of a strange place for us, right? It's not normal in Christian worship that we talk about sadness, right? It's certainly not normal in Christian worship that we talk about anger. In fact, I don't know, I had a lot of people say, I've never heard a sermon on the imprecatory Psalms as they were walking out today, right? Because this is kind of not normal for us, right? We're happy people, right? We're glad people, right? We're Christians, right? Now, don't be mistaken. Christians are people of great hope. We are people of great hope. We believe that God will make all things new and right, that he will settle all accounts. 
And if I, if I personally didn't believe that, I don't know how I wouldn't be overcome with grief all the time. I mean, when you consider all of the injustice in the world right now, you know, when, when you consider just, just one child that today is starving, that is riddled with disease, that has no hope of a future, that is in a totally abusive and corrupt environment because of no fault of his own, when you consider that child right now that exists all over the world, how, how do you sleep at night if you don't have some confidence somewhere that God is a just God and he will bring justice and righteousness even to that situation. So Christians, because of that, we are hopeful people. Our confidence is in the coming justice of God. It gives us an enormous amount of hope for the future, but listen to this, it doesn't excuse us from the responsibility to bring justice and to make right now. It also doesn't, it doesn't remove us from the real realities of this world. You know, and I just want to free you in that. Some of you are here today and you are sad and you are angry. You, you can be sorrowful yet rejoicing, right? You can be sad or angry yet hopeful, right? Christians are people who are hopeful, yes, but we live in a present age of pain, of injustice, and, and the right responses to injustice right now is anger. You are an image bearer. God, God has called you to be his image bearer. You, 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 the goal of the Christian life is that you would think as he thinks and do as he does and even feel as he feels. And so when we read Psalm 58, I believe what we're reading is the psalmist reflecting the way God feels about injustice of the world. The psalmist here gives us a, an image, gives us a window into the way that God feels about these things. And so let's read on in verse 6. He says, oh, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of these young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away when he aims his arrows. Let them be blunted. Now, this first part of this imprecation, right? So this is an imprecation, a calling out of curse, a calling out of judgment on injustice. This first part, what we see the psalmist doing here is he's saying, remove their ability to continue to do evil, right? Rip the fangs out of the snake's mouth, right? Uh, let their arrows not be sharp, right? Blunt out their arrows. Keep them from doing harm. But then he goes on, to, to, to call out further curses upon them, to bring judgment upon them. Look at verse 8. And this is heavy, heavy language. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. You ever see this? This is a really helpful illustration for us because we see this all the time, right? You know, you, you, it's hot. It's the middle of summer. You ever walk out on the middle of the concrete? There's the slug that crawled out on the concrete and he's just fried there on the ground. That's a pretty sad picture. And this is what the psalmist is saying. This is, this is what should become of the wicked. And then he goes even further, even heavier. 
like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. He's grabbing at here the most horrible of all situations. The, the, he, he is trying to, to get Israel to see how sad they have become, how sad the situation is. And then verse 9 is also kind of hard to understand. It says, sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. It, it, you kind of get distracted by thorns and blaze here, but it's not really about like the, the thorns and the blaze aren't really imprecations. It, it's basically before you can light up the stove, that's what he's kind of saying here, before your, hot, your pots feel the heat of the thorns, before you would light a fire that would heat up your pot, before you can boil uh, some water over the fire, right? Very soon is what he's saying. Soon may your, as one preacher said, may your whirlwind sweep them away. May your whirlwind sweep away the wicked. This is an imprecation. This is an expressed curse, expressed anger. And I just want you to hear this. That, that there, this is totally right and good for the Christian life. In the face of injustice, you should feel angry. So I want to take a few moments, though, to talk about anger, because that's a loaded statement, what I just said. And, and I want to give a little definition to, to how we understand this, this very powerful emotion of anger. So first of all, let me answer two questions. What is anger? And secondly, what do you do with anger? So first of all, what is anger? Anger, all anger, is a response to God's order being challenged. Anger is a response to God's order being challenged. Now, here's the deal. Whoever your God is will determine what you get angry about, right? So if you're the only God in your life then the only thing that you're ever going to get angry about is when someone cuts you off in traffic or when you're inconvenienced or when something doesn't go your way, right? So anger is always a response to God's order being challenged, but whatever you get angry about will tell you a lot about your idols. It'll tell you a lot about what you actually value, whose order you actually care about. And so righteous anger, godly anger, is anger when God's order, the true living God, when his order is challenged. And when you see God's order challenged, you should get angry. Now, this does not mean that you will never be angry when something wrong happens to you. When you are the victim of God's order being challenged or distorted, you should be angry. When someone steals from you, when someone is cruel to you, when someone lies to you, God's order there is being challenged and you are the victim of that. So yes, of course, an appropriate response to these things is anger. But here's how you know that your anger is not just self-vindicating and is actually God-glorifying. It's when you see someone else get stolen from or someone else get lied to, or someone else be wronged in some way. Do you get angry about that? Does that do anything to your heart? You see, when, when, when something cruel happens against us, there is a sense, and we see this all throughout the Psalms, where we're not just angry for our own sake, but we're angry for God's sake. 
who are angry because his order has been challenged, because his way has not been followed. There is a difference between self-vindicating anger and God-glorifying anger. And there's a lot more I could say here, but I got to move on. Secondly, second question, what do you do with anger? So when you get anger, all anger is a response to God's order being challenged. Secondly, what do you do when you get angry? And, and there are at least two things that anger will lead to. And this is really, really important. Anger, this is so important for you to realize. Please listen to me. Anger will either lead in your life to self-justifying sin or anger will lead to God-glorifying action. Anger will either lead to self-justifying sin or anger will lead to God-glorifying action. Anger can lead to self-justified vengeance, right? When someone does something wrong to you, you get angry about it. You can lash back out at them, not to pursue the justice of God in this situation, but just to invoke your authority, just to vindicate yourself, just to show how strong you are. That's self-justified vengeance. That that doesn't produce the glory of God. The second thing anger can lead to is self-justified bitterness, where someone has wronged you, someone has legitimately wronged you, but you won't forgive them. And you, you grow bitter against them, and you begin to look at them through a bitter lens. And, and when that happens, I just want you to hear this warning. Once that happens, you, they can't do anything right. And there are some of you, I want you to, there are some of you who are guilty of this right now. There's someone in your life who you hold bitterness against, who you won't forgive, and, and here's what bitterness does. Because, because when you start looking at them through the bitterness lens, everything they do is selfish or wrong or whatever, your, your angst or your anger toward them just grows deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. You need to repent of your bitterness. You need to forgive them. You need to reconcile with them. You need to make peace with them. Anger will lead to self-justified vengeance, self-justified bitterness. Anger will lead to self-justified pity. You can get angry about something and all of a sudden you have an excuse for everything, right? You can say, well, I would be doing better, but, and this is related to bitterness. Somebody could be a crutch for you. Well, they did this to me. They did that to me. It's all their fault. Anger will either lead to self-justifying sin or, or, and I want you to hear this, or when we rightly understand anger, Anger can lead to God-glorifying action. Basically, everything great that's ever happened since the fall of man has happened because somebody got angry. But it didn't lead to self-justifying sin. It led to God-glorifying action, right? We talked about this a few weeks ago. We are Protestants, right? We are Protestant people. What does that mean? It means that we are people that want to see the church purified. We don't want to see the church corrupted. And so the Protestants, if you will, saw corruption in the church. And they said, look, we don't want this to just justify sin in our lives. We're not going to join in with this sin. We're going to take action. We're going to seek the purity of the church. We're going to seek reform in the church. We want the church to be made whole again. That happened because somebody saw something wrong and it made them angry. But that anger was actually the energy that fueled God glorifying action. 
the United States of America, where we all live, right? America happened because somebody got angry. The, the, the colonialists were over here. They were living. They were getting taxed, right? They had no representation in parliament. They started saying, what? We're not represented, but we're taxed. This is tyranny. And so what happened? America was born. You just go through history. Every great moment. I mean, even just why is America, I pray and I hope, becoming a more perfect union? It's because people have gotten angry, and in the, the, in the best of us, they have pursued God-glorifying action. The civil rights movement is an example of this. Rather than self-justified sin, God-glorifying action was produced, even though it was hard, and there was a good and positive result. Anger is actually a good emotion. It, it is the righteous response to God's order being challenged. And our response to anger can be really good or it can be really bad. You know, it's an interesting time right now. I mean, this has been a heavy time. We're, do, we're doing our family vacation. We're leaving this week and I'm so happy. I, I, I'm ready to stop having intense vacations or intense conversations I hope I have an intense vacation, but uh, I am ready to stop having intense conversations with people all the time. I am like ready to talk to John Kellis about like skipping rocks, right? And not to talk about the election or COVID or, or you know, the Black Lives Matter movement or, or whatever else everybody's talking about. This is so heavy and it's so complex. So I'm excited about that. But there's a lot to think about right now. One of the little things that I've been thinking about and, you know, I've been talking about with some friends is, is this whole kind of uh, monument movement that's going on right now, the removal of the monuments. And, and I think it's very interesting. I think it tells us a lot about kind of how we're growing in society, but how history is also confusing. So, so many of the removal of monuments is happening right now are obviously removing monuments that were made to the Confederacy. And I think this is good. I think what we're, what we're recognizing is we should have never honored this institution. We should have never honored the Confederacy in such a way as to put up a monument. And so we need to remove the honor that we have placed on this. But, but some of the monuments that are being kind of taken down right now, they're, they're a little bit more complex. There's a little more layers, right? They, they weren't put up necessarily to honor an institution that had deep flaws. Uh, and some of these things, they were actually put up to honor institutions that we really value, like Thomas Jefferson, for example. Like some of his statues have been pulled down. Jefferson's a very complex person, right? He's this, he was the president, he was a founding father. He gave us this idea that all men are created equal. But on the other side, Jefferson was a slave owner. Jefferson came up with the three-fifths compromise. Jefferson, we know, abused some of his female slaves. I mean, so there, there's, there's a complexity there. It makes it very hard to understand what should be done with a guy like Jefferson. Or even George Washington, right? Some of his monuments have been brought down. The father of our nation. But yet again, did many great things. Incredibly courageous against the British in the Revolutionary War. But also a slave owner, even though he freed them in his deathbed. So there's all these like complexities to these things. So I'm not trying to say whether or whether or not monuments should be kept up or taken down. I'm not making any political statement or whatever right now. But I do think it's a helpful thing for us to think about. Because here's the deal. If you really look back through history, 
and, and if really the facts of everybody was known, there's not a person in history, <laughs> there's not a person that we've honored that doesn't come with a stain, that doesn't come with flaws. I mean, when all things are known, there's not a person that comes through all of this with purity, particularly people that are in the position of power. I mean, people in the position of power are very prone to use that power, just as we've been seeing here, for their own benefit, for their own good. They're prone to justify sin. They're prone to devise wrongs. All of these people, if the record were really known, it would be hard to keep any of these statues up. And I think that's the point. I want you to hear this. There will come a day when everything is known, when all good deeds and all good actions are known, but when all bad actions and even bad thoughts one of the most haunting passages of Scripture, you've heard me talk about this before, but the Bible says that God will judge the thoughts and intentions of our heart. God knows not only everything you've ever done, right? Some of us have like a hidden file or two. Maybe a few very close people know about, but the rest of y'all don't. All that stuff's going to be known. It is known by God. But it's not just that stuff. It's also the stuff that nobody knows. It's the stuff that, that was in your heart, that was in your mind, that because of shame, or maybe just because you, were, you had no courage to do it, or maybe you, maybe you had some discipline to not do it, but it still entered your mind. It was still a part of your heart. It still echoed who you really were. All of that's going to be known. The Bible even says that our intentions will be known. There's a lot of times when people have thought, he was doing something really nice, but I know I was kind of being selfish. All that's going to be known. And you see, on that day, on the last day, when all is known, when God judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart, I want you to hear this, all statues <laughs> will fall. And not just the statues, the people too. No one will remain standing except for one man, except for Jesus, who, who in his life and in his being is, is always right, is always pure. He is the man who lived out Psalm 19, who loved the law of the Lord, who loved the way of the Lord, who, who always purely and righteously followed God's way. He is the only one who will stand. He is the only one who is righteous. None of us would stand. And, and here's the, the amazing thing about this. You know, all of us are, are like these people here. All of us have poured out venom. All of us have justified our bad behavior, which is why we don't like the imprecatory psalms. It's why reading these psalms is so uncomfortable for us because who has the righteousness to actually stand up and call out this kind of condemnation on someone else? Who's, who's willing to do that? Who, who has the moral qualifications to call out this kind of judgment against someone else? And the answer is none of us do. But here's the amazing thing about the gospel. Jesus does. 
He is the only one worthy to judge. He is the only one worthy to actually bring this, to actually say this psalm. Jesus is the only one worthy. He is the only one that has the moral fiber, the moral character to actually condemn the sinner like you and me without joining us in sin. And yet, the only one worthy to condemn us came not to condemn, but rather to be condemned on our behalf. Jesus came to be the one who was cursed. He came to be the snail that dried up in the sun, or as he said on the cross, the worm. He was the child that never saw the day. He was the pot that was blown away by the whirlwind of God. He was bruised. He was crushed. He was scorned. He was the one that screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? What a question. Why? Why would God condemn and forsake the, the only one who was righteous with his unending and unmeasurable wrath. Why would God do this? And here's the answer. Because in the gospel, he who knew no sin, he who, the only one who was righteous, he who was totally righteous, he who knew no sin became our sin so that in him, we the sinners might become the righteousness of God. Which brings me to the third point. What does God's perfect justice produce? Look at verse 10. It says, The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. Last week, if you were here, I talked about the Christian life being like finding yourself in a story that God is telling. That's what the Christian life is like. You realize that God is telling the story. You're actually a character of the story. And so here we are. We're, we're in the story right now. And if I have to be honest, right now in the story, it is hard to not on one side be filled with just incredible angst, right? To just look at the world around us, to see the cruelty around us, the injustice around us, and to say, when will it end? Where does it end? Where does it stop? What's going to make this right? It's so hard in this moment right now, in 2020, to look at the world around us and not to be filled with angst. But on the other side, it's so hard in this moment right now to not look at the world around us and be filled with guilt. To not realize that, of course, we are part of the problem. We all have stains on our hand. Of course we've been a part of injustice. Of course we've been a part of not making the world righteous. Who here has no sin on their hand? Let him who has no sin cast the first stone. And even if you're not self-aware enough to realize that, you would at least have to say, I could have done more. Right? So on one side, we have angst. On the other side, we have guilt. But I want you to hear this today. If you are a Christian— if you are a Christian in this moment right now, right now, right now, you can look back to the cross of Jesus Christ. 
and see that on that cross, Jesus dealt with your sin, you can look back at the cross and actually, because of what Jesus has done for you, rejoice in the vengeance of God. You can rejoice when you see the vengeance of God on the cross because you know that God's vengeance has not, will not be applied to you because it was applied to Jesus. You can look back at the cross right now and know that you in Christ are forgiven. And you can even know that in Christ and through Christ and because of his righteousness, you in him are counted righteous. We can look back at the cross and realize that we have been forgiven and actually that Jesus has given us his record of righteousness. So if you do that in this moment, all the guilt, and as you do that, all the guilt will wash away. But you can also in this moment look forward as a Christian you can look forward to the day when God will make, will bring judgment on all things and when God will make all things right. You can look forward to that day not fearing the judgment because you know, because you've looked back to the cross and you know that all of your condemnation has been dealt with there. And as Blake reminded us early, you know that now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you can look forward to the day when God, the great judge of the universe, brings his judgments and makes all things right. And you can actually look forward to it with great anticipation because you know that then he will make all things new and make all things right and if you do that then all of the angst that you feel right now and I feel it too it will go away and if you're not an if you're not a Christian and you're here today then I want you to hear this this is the invitation this is the invitation to you that you can look to Jesus that you can trust in him, that he actually died on the cross for your sin if you trust him, that, that he rose to give you a new life. This is the invitation. Look to Jesus, trust in him, find your way, find your life in him. And then you can look back at the cross and know that on that cross, by his blood, your sin has been dealt with and you can rejoice when you see the vengeance of God. And you also can look forward to the last day without fear. And actually say with great anticipation, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Because in Christ, you are righteous. And surely there is a God who judges the earth. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for this psalm, for these words, for the encouragement that lie within them for the truth that lies within them. Father, I pray that you, even now, as we meditate on these things, would increase our faith in Jesus, that we would find ourselves all the more in Christ. That we would, as I said before, be faithful image bearers, thinking as you think, doing as you do, feeling as you feel. And I believe that Jesus will work this in us as we look to him, as we follow him, as we love him, as we honor him, as we obey him. And so Lord, increase our faith. Even now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we close today, I, I can't think of a, a better thing to do right now. In this moment, I, I really can't think of a better thing to do than to take the Lord's Supper together. Because God has, has given us the Lord's Supper 
as a remembrance of something. When we take this meal, we remember things. Things come to our mind. You could say it this way, as I've just been saying, we look to places. And one of the places that we look when we take the Lord's Supper is back to the cross. The other place that we look when we take the Lord's Supper is to the coming kingdom of Christ when one day we will actually be with him. So I want to talk about that here in just a few moments all the more. But at this time, we're going to pass these elements out as Jordan leads us in a song, Hold On to the Elements. And we're going to do this just as we did a few weeks ago. We're going to have uh, the the deacons will be coming around. You just stay put. I, I do want to give you a warning, though. If you're not in Christ, right, you may be here today and you know that you're not a Christian, and I am so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that you've been a part of this. Thank you for considering all of these things that we've been talking about, but this meal is not for you. If you would take it as an unbeliever, you would be taking it in what the Bible calls an unholy way, right? So you don't want to, you want to diminish this. You don't want to in any way um, dishonor God. So if you're not a believer, just let the elements pass. Nobody's going to be looking at you in a funny way. But if you are trusting in Christ, if right now you're finding your identity in Jesus, if right now you want to be found in him, if you realize he is your only hope and that he loves you, that he gave his life for you, and you want that to be known, then I invite you to this table and to take these elements. Hold on to them as we'll take them corporately here in a few moments. And if anyone here today, maybe you're not a believer, maybe you just would like, uh, you have a prayer need, you have a question for me, I'll be standing right behind this little wall here as these elements are passed, and I'd love the opportunity to talk with you. So let's take these elements together. Hold on to them as Jordan leads. Mm-hmm.